Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Is Speaker Pelosi about to make a $1.3 trillion bet? The lead starts right now. Moderate Democratic Senator Joe Manchin finally makes his counteroffer public, and no one knows what's going to happen next. Will there be a vote on this huge piece of Biden's agenda, or is this all going to come crashing down? Plus, one senator says Instagram is like cigarettes designed to get teens hooked, while another senator creates a fake account to show the destructive influence that the popular app can have on children. Plus, Some Republican lawmakers are now openly pushing a wild, racist conspiracy theory. The latest dangerous lie to make its way from fringe message boards to mainstream Republicanism. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with breaking news in our politics lead. There is no deal. And there is no framework, but there is a major development on Capitol Hill today. The moderate Democratic contingent has finally publicly made a counteroffer to the progressives' $3.5 trillion proposal to expand the social safety net. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, a key voice in the Democratic negotiations, went in front of the cameras today to announce his top-line number, $1.5 trillion, he says. Now, progressives have for weeks been urging moderates to make a counteroffer, but... $1.5 $1.5 trillion is less than half of what the progressives want. And hearing it out loud, well, that might make it even more likely that the planned bipartisan infrastructure bill vote tonight will fail. As progressives have linked the two plans, saying they want both or neither. Now, if Speaker Pelosi ultimately pulls this vote today, it will be against the wishes of some of these moderate Democrats. One of them will join me in just minutes with a reality check on where negotiations stand. But first, as CNN's Ryan Noble reports, from Capitol Hill, Democratic lawmakers are still moving forward with the plans for a vote on infrastructure this evening. It is a high-stakes staring contest on Capitol Hill. If we weren't making sure that we're actually getting into the nitty-gritty of it, we wouldn't be doing our jobs. Members on both sides of the Capitol haggling over close to $5 trillion in government spending, but without a clear path forward in place. We're on a path to have something that I can say to my colleagues with integrity and certainty is the path we're on. And uh, in, in terms of timing and the rest, I wish we had more time. At issue, progressives still are unwilling to budge on passing a $1.2 trillion infrastructure deal until they can get a guarantee that the much bigger $3.5 trillion social safety net expansion is passed as well. After a lengthy meeting with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, progressives are holding firm. She's maintaining that the vote could take place today still. What did she tell you about that? There's always a chance, as I said to you yesterday. Part of what is holding progressives like Pramila Jayapal back is the massive difference in a top-line spending number between her caucus and the desires of holdout moderates like West Virginia's Joe Manchin. I don't fault any of them who believe that they're much more progressive and much more liberal. God bless them. 
And all they need to do is we have to elect more, I guess, for them to get theirs, elect more liberals. A new document reveals what Manchin told Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer he wanted several weeks ago. Manchin didn't want the debate to begin on reconciliation until October 1st and said he was only willing to spend $1.5 trillion. That's a big difference from what progressives want and part of why both sides are at an impasse. Somebody has a different offer, then they can put it on the table. You don't negotiate against yourself. If you go to buy a house, you don't... Uh, put down an offer, and then before an offer has even been put down on the table, suddenly say, okay, I'm willing to go down another 100000 Anybody done that? I don't think so. That's not how we negotiate. Still, Pelosi refuses to concede defeat. She has yet to delay the vote on the infrastructure package, but has also vowed she won't bring the bill to the floor without a vote. Her message, stay tuned. moment by moment. I'm hour by hour. And while we're moment by moment on this debate over the infrastructure bill, the House and Senate actually did make some progress today, passing through a continuing resolution that guarantees the government will remain open. The final vote, 254 to 175 in the House, 34 Republicans voting yes for that, Jake. So any crisis about the government shutting down has now been averted. Jake. For now, Ryan Nobles, thanks so much. Let's discuss this all with Democratic Congresswoman. Carolyn Bordeaux of Georgia, she's part of the original group of moderates who negotiated with Speaker Pelosi to get the deadline set for an infrastructure vote this week. Um, Congresswoman, thanks for joining us. So we're obviously we're obviously past uh, the September 27th deadline for a vote on infrastructure, uh, which is supposed to be Monday. Uh, Pelosi promised that. But is the vote going to happen today? Um, and if it doesn't, uh, what would your reaction be? Well, first of all, we're feeling very optimistic about getting this done. Um, Back in my prior life, I used to work on state budgets and worked on those during the Great Recession when it was really tough. And it would take a while. It takes negotiation to get through some of these really tough things. And we're in the middle of a very intense negotiation. And I have a lot of confidence we're going to get the bipartisan infrastructure bill done uh, today or maybe in the wee hours of the morning. And then we're going to turn around and work on a really good reconciliation bill. Well, in order for that to happen, uh, progressives say to avoid them tanking the infrastructure bill, uh, 45 of them or so or at least will vote against it, unless there is an agreement on a way forward when it comes to the social safety net welfare programs, the, the, the so-called Reconciliation Act. Now, Senator Manchin said this afternoon he acknowledged that his, his top line number is $1.5 trillion. Progressives are at $3.5 trillion. Where are you? Is $1.5 trillion about where you are? Well, what I tell everybody is here's what I want to look at. I want to look at what the needs are, what the costs are, and then how we pay for it. And by building that way, we'll get to a top-line number. I don't think it's $3.5 trillion. Um, I think we'll get to something between that and the $1.5 probably. But um, I want to see what's in it and what programs we're funding, and, and uh, we'll build from there. Is your objection to the $3.5 trillion bill as it exists right now more about what's in the bill or more about the tax increases that would be necessary to pay for all of that? Well, really what I said to people is I want to make sure it's paid for. And uh, right now we're not quite there yet. I also want to make sure that they're not budget gimmicks in there. So 
Uh, the bill is currently crafted. We have three years of the child tax cut in there. But, you know, if we're going to do the child tax cut, we need to do it for the full period of time, not just have these fiscal cliffs throughout there. And what that means is we're going to need to prioritize. We're going to think very carefully about what we're doing. Um, I also prefer uh, that we really focus on needs. We make sure that we are really targeting where there is a really serious need in this country. And I think uh, there are a lot of great things we're going to do, uh, but we need to build it around that kind of criteria. Your moderate uh colleague, Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy of Florida, she made an interesting argument, which is that she doesn't even think that the way the Congressional Budget Office scores these bills, uh, which is, you know, explains what's in them and how to pay for them and whether or not that's going to work, makes any sense when it comes to the climate change provisions, because they can't count the cost of not addressing climate change. All of the billions and billions of dollars uh, in destruction we see happening out west or in Florida, uh, et cetera. Well, that makes the, a conversation about how much these things cost when it comes to climate change difficult, I would think. Well, I think that's a fair point. And there's been a lot of discussion about how you think about climate change, how much you submit, uh, submit it to those pay-go provisions. Um, and I think that's all part of the negotiation that we work through. But I think all of us are really committed to not having budget gimmicks, making sure that we really think thoughtful, very thoughtful about what we're putting in this, making sure that we pay for it. Um, and if we meet those criteria, I think we'll have a fabulous bill. The head of the Progressive Caucus, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, of Washington State was asked why Speaker Pelosi's commitment to getting a a big spending bill done wasn't enough for progressives to vote yes on infrastructure. Take a listen to her answer. Going beyond trust to verify is about, unfortunately, some senators and, you know, some of our colleagues in the House, 4 percent, just want to make sure you all got that number, 4 percent of Democrats uh, who are opposing the president, passing the president's agenda right now. that is the group we're concerned about. Four percent. It seems like you might be part of the four percent she's talking about. <laughs> I think there are a lot of us. And again, uh, I'm a member of the New Dems. I'm also a member of the Blue Dogs, so several different caucuses. And um, both of them have really outlined their priorities, and they're very much along what uh, I was talking about before. You know, we want to see these paid for. We want to make sure it addresses needs. We want to make sure there are no budget gimmicks. But just one thing I want to add uh, to this conversation is I was the only Democratic pickup uh, in the country in 2020. And so I have a lot of thoughts about what it means uh, to deliver on the promises uh, that we made in 2020. And when I ran uh, my ads, my closing ads were that I was going to work uh, in a bipartisan way. I was going to be fiscally responsible. I was going to focus on key things like getting the economy back on track and making sure everybody has affordable health care. When you hear progressives in the media or in the Congress suggest that people like you or Senator Manchin or Senator Sinema or or Congresswoman Murphy, individuals uh, who come from a more moderate position than they do, not just that you disagree with them, but that you are inherently corrupt, that you are doing the bidding of corporations, that you are listening to special interests and not uh, your constituents. Uh, How do you take that and, and how do you respond? I tell everybody I have placed my feet firmly with the people of Georgia's 7th District, which is the area that I represent. Uh, You can go look at the ads that I closed my campaign with, uh, where I was the only Democrat to flip a seat in the country in 2020. And again, really what I ran on was that I could work in a way that was bipartisan, that was fiscally responsible, and that could really deliver for the American people. It was a very pragmatic message. And as I go through this process, I am very intent on delivering what I promised. And you still think infrastructure is going to happen tonight or early tomorrow morning 
and there will be some sort of agreement on the reconciliation bill. I am very optimistic that we're going to get the infrastructure bill done, and I'm very optimistic that we're going to make great progress on reconciliation throughout the day. But that bill has a lot of work that remains to be done, and I think that negotiation will continue on for the, the next few weeks. Democratic Congresswoman Carolyn Bordeaux of Georgia, thank you so much. Good to see you. Good to be here. Multiple vaccination mandate deadlines are happening now. Are they working? We're going to take a look next. Plus, a sobering trend among our men and women in uniform, the crisis hitting the military. That's coming up. Topping our health leads, some rare good news in the fight against COVID. For the first time since June, the CDC is forecasting that the rate of COVID deaths will fall over the next month. Right now, an average of nearly 2,000 people a day are dying from COVID in the U.S., and about 114,000 are infected. That's Good news, that good news, rather, comes as CNN's Jason Carroll reports. The deadline has arrived for many government employees to get vaccinated or get fired. It's deadline day in the nation's most populous state. All two and a half million healthcare workers in California must be fully vaccinated by today or risk losing their jobs. Cedar sinai and UC Davis both show more than 90% compliance. We're around vulnerable patients, older patients, immunocompromised patients, and these are safe and effective vaccines. These have to be mandated for healthcare workers. In other parts of the country, we're seeing the impact of workplace vaccine mandates. States, including Rhode Island and New York, set vaccine mandates for healthcare workers that take effect this week. New York's governor says the state has not seen major staffing shortages following the healthcare worker vaccine mandate. She says more than 90 percent got the shot. You will see that number go higher quickly uh, because what we're finding is, you know, as more people uh, are furloughed or suspended, uh, that that number is going to go up. The governor is now working to expand its mandate to include health care workers not regulated by the Department of Health, like some prison employees. What could encourage more workplace vaccine mandates? A rule from OSHA, or the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, for businesses with more than 100 employees. President Biden announced it was coming weeks ago, but so far, it's not out. Obviously, it takes some time, and we want to make sure when we put these out, they're clear uh, and they provide guidance necessary to businesses. I can't give you a timeline. Uh, OSHA's working on them, uh, but obviously, uh, hopefully we'll know more in the coming weeks. Tyson Foods not waiting. Meat processing plants were especially hit hard by COVID during the height of the pandemic. In August, Tyson announced a vaccine mandate. Now it says 91% of its U.S. employees have at least one dose of the vaccine. West Virginia, which at one point led the country with the highest vaccination rate, now has the lowest. The governor pleaded with people to get vaccinated, but also says he won't force anyone to do it. I do not I do not feel comfortable with this mandate stuff and everything because first and foremost we are Americans and we do have our freedoms and we do not want to divide us even more. Some positive news, daily cases have started to drop or are steady in the majority of the country. Hospitalizations are trending down and death rates are projected to as well. 
And Jake, late today, this development, New York City public school employees are asking the U.S. Supreme Court to put a stop to the city's vaccine mandate. And court papers filed late today basically saying that lawyers are arguing that instead of allowing these employees to opt out of getting these vaccines through weekly testing, instead, the the lawyers argue saying, quote, the mandate forces unvaccinated public school employees to go on unpaid leave for nearly a year. This places an unconstitutional burden on public school teachers. Jake. Jason Carroll, thanks so much. Uh, Joining us now, CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, for the first time since June, the CDC's ensemble forecast is projecting that new COVID deaths are likely to decrease over the next month. Decrease. That's, That's good news if it happens. How much do these forecasts matter, though? Well, you know, they are all based on assumptions still. You know, you've got to put in certain assumptions, and that does count on what, how humans will behave, their, their, their behavior and their reactions to this. Um, I think if you look at the trend lines overall, we've known that cases uh, are followed by hospitalizations in terms of a lagging indicator and then deaths. Cases have gone down about 12 percent over the last week, hospitalizations down about 25 percent since the beginning of the month. Deaths are still high, uh, right around 2,000 people per day. But it is, a, I think, based on the fact that it's a lagging indicator, is likely to go down as well. The two big things, Jake, is that still about over 90 percent of the country is still in high transmission areas. That means it's still a big blaze and that blaze can you know, spread quickly if, if numbers start going in the wrong direction. And also we're going into winter. And COVID or not, respiratory viruses spread more in the winter. So those are the two big unknowns still, Jake. Right. People are worried about not just COVID, but uh, also the flu. That's right. Um, Can a a positive forecast, uh, optimistic forecast, and really any good pandemic news, can can it have an effect of making people less cautious? Uh, yeah, Jake, this, this is a really good question and a good point. I mean, I think we've seen that at various times through the pandemic. Everybody wants to share good news, understandably. I think even over the summer, Jake, uh, in June, it was the lowest that the cases had been since March of 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic. Numbers got down to about 11,000 or so cases per day. And you saw a lot of things lifting at that point, including people, you know, CDC coming out and saying you don't need to wear masks if you're vaccinated. They then had to change the stance on that sometime later. I think it's safe to say that it is important to have that good news, but you don't want to do things that have to pull them back like we saw with masks. You got to make sure that the trend lines are really positive and they stay positive for some time before making those types of decisions. I've talked to lots of policymakers about this over the last couple of months. That has been a theme that has always emerged. Yeah, it seemed unwise when President Biden came forward and declared uh, independence from uh, the pandemic and took off the mask. And no, here we are back at 2000 deaths a day again. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the humility uh, of this virus. And, you know, even now as we're having this conversation, I'd like to look at these positive trend lines. But you can hear, Jake, I'm, I'm being cautious here because we can be surprised. And if we let down our guard, there's enough of a fire still burning that it, it can start to spread again very quickly. There was a hearing today uh, with Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra, where Republican senators were specifically uh, criticizing him on the topic of naturally acquired immunity. Some folks say that if you have survived COVID and therefore have those antibodies, vaccine mandates should not apply to you. Take a listen. This is an arrogance coupled with an authoritarianism that is unseemly and un-American. We tell Americans that natural immunity does not 
confer immunity. That goes against the science. I, uh, I concurred with, uh, uh, with Senator Paul, his concern about natural acquired immunity with regards to uh, COVID-19. And, and uh, I, I was disappointed in your response. I want to just note that the second and third voices there, Senator Cassidy and Senator Romney, have been very pro-vaccine, very pro-medical community voices. But let's just talk about the facts here. Does it make sense scientifically to require even those who have had COVID to get vaccinated? Because the argument goes they do have more immunity than those who are unvaccinated and have not had the virus. Jake, th- th- there's a there's a nuance here, and I think it's it's always sort of lost, uh, you know, in, in these conversations. One is that, yeah, you're absolutely right, that people who have had COVID, there is a, a, a studies that have come out showing not only do they have good protection, that that protection can even be higher than vaccinated immunity. Two problems. One is that we, we still aren't doing enough testing, so we still don't know out of all the people who've had COVID in the past, who in fact has these antibodies and how, and how many of these antibodies they have, how protective they are. There are some people, Jake, who have COVID in the past and they develop significant antibodies, some who don't. We still don't know who they are. It's a problem. It's been a problem uh, with regard to testing since the beginning of this pandemic. And now you're seeing another manifestation of that problem. The other issue is that, you, you know, you have the Israeli study, which I think doctors uh, uh, Paul and, and, um, and Cassidy were talking about there, which did show this additional protection. But there's other studies that have shown people who, who've had COVID in the past and then get at least one shot are far less likely to get reinfected versus those who've had COVID alone. So there, there's, there's a nuance here. The best strategy, I think, that I've heard from a lot of people is that you should still get at least one shot after it. Think of the COVID disease as your prime and at least one shot after is the boost. Many countries around the world are doing that. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much as always. Coming up, a look at an insane and racist conspiracy theory that too many Republican lawmakers are now openly espousing. Stay with us. In our politics lead today, the editorial board of the Albany Times Union newspaper recently noticed, noted that its local congresswoman, the number three House Republican, Elise Stefanik, had taken to alleging, quote, that Democrats are looking to grant citizenship to undocumented immigrants in order to gain a permanent liberal majority, or as she calls it, a permanent election insurrection, unquote. Now, in addition to condemning what the editorial board called, quote, hateful rhetoric, that Ms. Stefanik and far too many of her colleagues so shamelessly spew, the board noted that this is just the latest example of Republican elected officials embracing and mainstreaming a racist conspiracy theory, the deranged idea that Democrats are trying to replace white people with black and brown people for political reasons. And as CNN's Sunland Sarfati reports, this is a theory that started in white supremacist circles and has inspired numerous acts of mass murder. What was once a fringe white supremacist conspiracy theory has now become mainstream. Jews will not replace us! We know what the Democrats are up to here. They want open borders. This is exactly their strategy. Uh, They want to replace the American electorate. With a growing number of Republican lawmakers now openly promoting the far right's so-called great replacement theory. For many Americans, what seems to be happening or what they believe right now is happening is uh, what appears to them is we're replacing 
national-born American, native-born Americans per to permanently transform the political landscape of this very nation. The racist anti-immigrant theory that says non-white immigrants are being brought to replace America's white population. This administration wants complete open borders and you have to ask yourself why. Is it really they want to remake the demographics of America? The white nationalist conspiracy theory is detailed in French writer Reno Camus' 2011 book called The Great Replacement. And elements of replacement theory appear to have motivated some of the most heinous recent mass murders in the U.S. and around the world. The gunman accused of killing more than 20 people at an El Paso Walmart in 2019 allegedly uploaded a document to the Internet before the shooting saying, this attack is a response to the Hispanic invasion of Texas. They are the instigators, not me. I am simply defending my country from cultural and ethnic replacement brought on by the invasion. The man who allegedly killed 11 people at a Pittsburgh synagogue in 2018 spouted nonsense on social media about Jewish people being somehow responsible for immigrant, quote, invaders. And the shooter who killed 51 people at a mosque and Islamic center in Christchurch, New Zealand, named his own manifesto the Great Replacement. This is an invasion. The theory amplified again by the former president this weekend. And our country is being turned into a migrants camp. Joe Biden has thrown the border wide open and our country is being invaded by hundreds of thousands of people every single month. Voices on Fox News and openly defended by name by sitting members of Congress this week. Who do you think they're going to vote for? So this is this is trying to take over our country without firing a shot. Republicans normalizing the theory, leading some to fear that could prompt even more violence. It is an insurgence. It's an invasion. And while some of the Republican lawmakers reject the idea that this rhetoric is racist, the Anti-Defamation League is calling it out for being exactly that, as well as anti-Semitic and anti-American. Sunland Sarfati, thanks so much. Let's talk about this with conservative writer Bill Kristol. And Bill, we just heard Republican members of Congress, Matt Gates, Brian Babin, or Babin, Scott Perry, Louis Gohmert, uh, Senator Ron Johnson, all pushing elements of this re replacement theory that is on its face nonsense and on its face racist. If Republican leaderships don't hold them accountable and their voters don't, who will? Well, maybe the general electorate will because it's such a bad, toxic combination of some traditional American racism, unfortunately. But then this European style, blood and soil nativism, this did come out of Europe, uh, the, the term itself, Great Replacement it, itself, that term from 2010, 2011 in France itself comes from a long tradition, often used about, uh, in an anti-Semitic way in the late 19th century. The Jews are trying to replace us, then it was the Muslims who were replacing us. And one important part of this conspiracy theory, the globalist elites are doing it on purpose because this helps them somehow take over the country. So it's really a toxic stew uh, fed by Fox News and other parts of the right-wing infotainment uh, 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 complex and what my Sarah, what my colleague Sarah Longwell calls the this uh, Republican triangle of doom. The infotainment complex promotes something, uh, the base gets all worked up about it. Republican politicians test it out, they get a good response from the base, and we're in this kind of uh, triangle of doom that could only be broken if it's 
well, two ways. The voters have to repudiate it, but you'd think some responsible elites would repudiate it. Fox News is owned by certain people. It has a board of directors. The Republican Party has leaders, uh, both in the House and in the Senate and governors. You know, it's kind of important that the people who are closest to this repudiated the most firmly and the most strongly, I would think. Yeah. And, and as you note, it's a toxic ideology and it, it it has gotten people killed pushing this ideology. Just today, uh, we learned that the man who opened fire at a California synagogue in 2019, killing one person, was sentenced to life in prison. Just to remind people, he pleaded guilty. He told police officers at the time, quote, I'm defending our nation against the Jewish people who are trying to destroy all white people, unquote. Again, this idea of, of Jews being part of this cabal, bringing in black and brown people to replace white people, that's the replacement theory. And whether it's in a manifesto from a psycho or a member of Congress, literally people are being killed because of this nonsense. Yeah, and in the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh, I believe one of the charges specifically was that the synagogue had contributed a rather modest amount, I think, to the uh, Hebrew Immigration Aid Society, a long-standing society, I'm not sure that's exactly the right name, which was helping you know raise some money for refugees, basically. So this synagogue was attacked, partly out of, I'm sure, just classic anti-Semitism, but partly because this particular synagogue was trying to help out uh, some, some refugees who had, who had recently been settled in the United States. And, and we know that white supremacists only feel more emboldened uh, when their talking points go mainstream, when they are embraced by politicians like Donald Trump or, or others. This problem does not seem to be getting any better. It seems to be getting worse. Do you worry about what's to come? Yeah, very much so. And let's mention Donald Trump. I mean, so he's not just, geez, kind of a prominent guy there saying it in a rally. He is the most recent president for the United States and the leading Republican in the United States and the most likely Republican nominee in 2024. So this isn't just a, gee, a few people, a couple of crackpots, you know, in the House of Representatives and some local talk radio hosts that can do damage too. This is Trump himself echoing it, amplifying it, and urging basically his followers, whether in the media or in elected office, to amplify this and echo this as well, which is why people like me have said so often and people say, oh, you're obsessed with Trump. This is why Trump needs to be repudiated. If you don't repudiate Trump, then you're sort of giving opening the door to all these that to this really is, again, a toxic sort of message which can cause violence and death and, and leaving aside the violence of I mean, just the amount of bitterness, resentment, whipping up of hatreds, really whipping up of, of, of enmity and hatreds in a way that's so damaging to the country. Centuries-old hatreds in some cases. Bill Crystal, thank you so much. Appreciate it, as always. InstaHarm, the experiment one lawmaker ran that showed how the popular app might be hurting your children. Stay with us. In our tech lead today, comparing Instagram to a cigarette and Facebook to big Tobacco. That's what one Democratic senator did today during a contentious hearing on Capitol Hill on the impact the social media apps have on your children. Take a listen. Instagram is that first childhood cigarette meant to get teens hooked early. Facebook is just like big tobacco, pushing a product that they know is harmful to the health of young people, pushing it to them early. Let's bring in CNN's Donnie O'Sullivan, who covered this hearing for CNN. And Donnie, another senator came with receipts in a way, showing what Instagram promotes to some kids. Tell us about that. 
That's right, Jake. Senator uh, Blumenthal uh, said that his staff did a pretty simple experiment, but very, very effective. They set up an Instagram account, a new Instagram account. And in that drop down menu, when you're setting up an account on social media, they said that they were a 13 year old girl. They then said they were very easily able to find um, accounts about extreme dieting. And once they started following a few of these accounts on this new Instagram account, uh, Instagram's algorithms, Instagram itself, within a day, Blumenthal said, began recommending to that account, to that 13-year-old girl, for all Instagram knew, uh, accounts that promoted self-harm. So I think this was really an effective way of really showing that, you know, these these aren't outlier problems. These are real issues that a senator's staff can quickly set up an account like a teenager might and begin getting recommendations for dangerous accounts like this. Jake? Oh, that's so dispiriting. Uh, what did Facebook have to say uh, about Blumenthal's experiment? <laughs> well, Facebook sort of had their standard response where they said, you know, we don't allow accounts that promote Uh, self-harm. But therein lies the issue, right? I mean, we come across things every day on these platforms that the companies have supposedly banned, but are so, so easy to find. I think it was a a pretty uh, efficient way that the senator's staff did this and was just really able to point out that, you know, this problem is, 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 is so widespread across the platform. Um, that it is not something that, that are just these isolated instances. And for Facebook and, and Instagram, that the executive who, who went to Congress today uh, really didn't have a lot of answers, and, and the senators were quite frustrated. Donny O'Sullivan, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Turning to our nationally today, a tragic trend for the uniformed men and women defending the United States, the suicide rate among active duty service members jumped by more than 41% in the last five years, according to a new Pentagon report, which showed a 9% spike in death by suicide in 2020 alone. This report also found those service members were largely male in their 30s and enlisted. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said in a statement, quote, trends are not going in the right direction. We must redouble our efforts to provide all of our people with the care and the resources they need to reduce stigmas and barriers to care, unquote. If you or someone you know is having suicide, suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255, 1-800-273-8255, or you can text HOME to 741741. Coming up, the FBI was back at Brian Laundrie's home today. Why? We go outside that laundry home next. International lead as the dramatic and mysterious search for the fiancé of Gabby Petito continues. The timeline of events since her murder is becoming more clear. We now know that Gabby's fiancé, Brian Laundrie, bought a phone at an AT&T store on September 4th after returning to Florida from his trip with Gabby in Wyoming, where her body was later found. Two days later, the Laundrie family went camping. They returned on the 8th. On September 11th, Gabby Petito's family reported her missing. Six days later, Laundrie's parents reported him missing, and he remains missing. Let's bring in CNN's Randy Kay. She's outside the Laundrie family home in Northport, Florida. And Randy, we're hearing the FBI was there today. Um, What were they looking for? 
Well, Jake, the FBI has been here uh, a few times now already, but they did return this afternoon. We reached out to the lawyer for the Laundry family, and he told CNN that the FBI agents had come here to collect some personal items of Brian Laundry's to help in the search for him. Uh, we are told that they collected those personal items to assist the canines, uh, the canine dogs, in, a, in the search for Brian Laundry. The lawyer for the family said there is nothing more to it. But what we saw were uh, those agents uh, arriving here with a large brown paper bag. Uh, they went inside. They left without that paper bag. So perhaps they were returning some items. Also, one of the agents uh, briefly went into the camper that is parked here in the driveway uh, and then left that camper. But just so you know, I mean, that would be the same camper. Uh, you mentioned that camping trip. They went camping uh, September 6th through 8th. Uh, that would have been the camper that they took. So uh, we know that Brian Laundry likely was in that camper uh, pretty recently and certainly in in the house until he disappeared, Jake. And, and Randy, what else do we know about the overall police response there? We're getting some new information, Jake, uh, just this afternoon about this flurry of police calls and police activity uh, here related to the laundry home. Someone has been calling the police related to this house uh, on some very key dates in this case. Let me just mention a couple of them. The weekend of September 10th and 11th, you mentioned Gabby was uh, named missing on September 11th. On September 10th, the day before, two police calls related to the laundry family address. On the 11th, the day she was reported missing, three police calls. On the 14th, which is when the family says they last saw Brian Laundry, the 14th of September, one police call. And on the 17th, which was the day that the family reported him missing, four police calls. Now, we don't know if these were uh, calls into 911 or the non-emergency line or mix. We're still looking to get some clarity on that. Uh, but we do know that these calls were made. We don't know who was making them, uh, but we're still getting this information that there were this flurry of calls here uh, as this case is unfolding, Jake. Hmm. CNN's Randy Kay, thank you so much. Today, renewed focus on keeping kids in school during the pandemic and the key tool that is hard to come by. Stay with us. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 